John chapter 6, we'll start in verse 1, and I'll read down through verse 15. John writes, After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. And a great multitude was following him, because they were seeing the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Jesus, therefore, lifting up his eyes and seeing the great multitude that was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread that these may eat? And this he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many, uh, so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, and the number, uh, in number, about five thousand. Jesus therefore took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. When therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is of a truth, this is of a truth, the prophet who is to come in the world. Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and make, take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, again, we're thankful for the privilege of coming here this morning. We're thankful again for the privilege of meeting in person. And again, we don't take that lightly in the world in which we live. And we pray for our brothers and sisters who are that don't have that privilege. And we pray, Lord, that you and your kindness would work in the heart of the kings that they are sitting under, that they might have that freedom to come back together and to worship you corporately. And in the meantime, that you might be glorified by the persecution that the church is increasingly facing throughout the world, that men and women who love you might be faithful to you no matter the cost. So again, we're thankful that we have the privilege to come here. We're thankful that we can study your word, and we're so thankful that you left it for us so that we might know more about you and more about our wonderful Savior, the dear Lord Jesus Christ. So go before us, open your word to us, open our hearts, that we may uh, be transformed by your truth. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'm excited to be here, one, and I'm excited that we're back in the book of John, right? Starting off here in chapter 6. It's been a number of weeks since we were uh, here in John, and I'm excited to be back into the flow of the text. And the chapter begins with perhaps one of the most well-known and familiar stories in the Bible, what is commonly known as the feeding of the 5,000. Of all the miracles that the Lord Jesus Christ performed, the so-called feeding of 5,000, the 5,000 is the only one that's recorded in each of the four Gospels, which tells us that there's something significant about it, something of unusual importance. Therefore, it calls for our diligent study. And again, it's a continuing theme, right, or a continuation of, Don, of John's uh, theme, again, the staggering testimony of the reality to the identity of who Jesus Christ is, that he is none other than God come in human flesh. And again, that's why this account is written in all four Gospels. Again, the underlying premise or the thesis, if you will, of John's book, John 20 and 31, says, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. 
Now, I've told you that many times through our study, that this is why John writes. He writes under the inspiration of the person of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit, God wants us to have a proper understanding of who Jesus is, the historic, real person, Jesus Christ, the one who was born in Bethlehem, the one who lived his early life in Nazareth, the one who came to Jerusalem, the one who is from the nation of Israel, the one who ministered to that nation, and the one who was murdered by that same people. The one who died on a Roman cross was buried, but beat death, rose victoriously from the grave. He ascended into heaven, is at the Father's right hand, and he has promised to return. This one, the only one of his kind, the one who is fully both God and fully man. And again, we've seen in our study so far in the book of John that only by having a proper understanding of who Jesus Christ is that a person can be saved. Because Jesus Christ is God's one and only provision for reconciliation. Jesus Christ is God's only provision for forgiveness of sin. There's no forgiveness apart from Christ. And no one can be saved unless they have a proper understanding of who Jesus Christ is. No one can be saved unless they believe that Jesus Christ is actually God come in the flesh. Because that is a claim that he repeatedly makes for himself over and over again, the fact that he is God. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, if I and the, Fa- I and the Father are one. So again, he claims to be God. The New Testament promotes him as God. John is teaching that he's God because the fact is he's God, right? And eternal life only comes through God who has stepped into time and put on our flesh as our substitute. You're not getting there by your own effort. You're only getting there by the substitute, the person, the incarnation of God himself, the person, Jesus Christ. So very basically, very simply, believe upon the person of Jesus Christ and be saved. Reject him. And spend eternity in hell for that error. Those are the choices. Because again, apart from coming to a true biblical understanding of the person of Jesus Christ, apart from you humbling yourself before him, you're still in some fashion, some way trusting in yourself. You're trusting in your own righteousness. You're trusting at some level that you're good enough, that you're a good enough person, that somehow you can save yourself by your own effort. And in the meantime, you're spurning God's offer of love, his mercy, his grace, that he has extended to men through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, that idea that we can make ourselves right before God is a fallacy. It's a lie from the pit of hell because over and over again, John repeats that story, Christ himself even uh, tells us that truth. John chapter 3, verse 18. Jesus says, he who believes in him, in the Christ, Jesus as the Savior is not judged. He who does not believe in him has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. I've told you numerous times that God's not keeping a track, not keeping a record of your supposed good deeds. Because there's not a good deed in the room, not a good deed in the universe that's good enough to get you into heaven. He doesn't keep that kind of account. The only account that God in heaven keeps is that you trusted his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, the one who doesn't believe in him has been judged already. So again, as a tremendous mercy, God is saying, look, I'm declaring to mankind, this is the reality of where everybody is. This is true. John 3 and 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. You need to know where you stand before God. And apart from Jesus Christ, you stand in a very poor place. Jesus Christ is mankind's only hope. Therefore, again, what you believe about the person of Jesus Christ has eternal ramifications. And again, the writer John of the book book that we're studying continues to give proof after proof, evidence after evidence to the reality of the, the identity of Jesus as the Messiah. He is the Lamb of God, the one who's come to take away the sin of the world. Again, he's mankind's only hope. And because he has come into the world, again, it's a declaration by God, not only of his mercy, but it's a declaration 
that all men are in need of him. All men are in need of repentance. All men are in need of repentance and confession of sin and forgiveness that, again, only comes through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is that important. Get Jesus Christ right, and it'll provide for you eternal life. Get Jesus Christ wrong, and it'll cost you eternally. It is that simple. It's that simple. That's true. Now, here in our text, what is known as the feeding of the 5,000, again, is one of the most well-known and familiar miracles performed by Jesus. And, and just the massive size of the miracle, right, just the sheer number, uh, makes it an unprecedented event. Right? The vast number of uh, witnesses that were present and participated in, in the miracle is unprecedented. Now, John identifies the group in verse 2 and verse 5. He calls them a great multitude. And in verse 10, he says the number of men who were there were about 5,000. If you go over to Matthew 14, which you don't need to do, but in Matthew's version of it, Matthew 14, verse 21, and his version of the story, Matthew uses a very specific word for men, M-E-N, men. And that word distinguishes men from women, or a man from a woman, and it distinguishes a man from a child. So it's not a generic term, men, which would include mankind, but, but it's men in the sense of masculine adults. We had that conversation last week, right? We understand there's masculine adults and mass and females, right? We understand that distinction. So when John, when Matthew uses this very term, what he's doing is trying to help us get a grip or an understanding of perhaps how many people were there. Because in light of the customs of the day, the chances are not only were there men present, but there were many wives. And most families at that time had lots of children, so they're probably wives, and, and, and along with them, many children. It has been suggested by many uh, commentators that there were perhaps somewhere up to not just 5,000, but somewhere up to perhaps 15 to 20, maybe even 25,000 people if you added all the men, all the women, all the children that were more likely present at this event. So it, it is, what did John say? It is a great multitude, right? It is a staggering number of people. Now, the only other miracle in, in uh, Jesus that is recorded is when of this size is when he feeds the 4,000 that he does a li- little bit later over in the area of Decapolis, but that's 4,000. Again, it's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Matthew 15 and Mark 8 record them. But again, just the sheer size, the massive size of this miracle uh, makes it remarkable. And again, that's why it's included in part in all four Gospels. The only other miracle of Christ that is recorded in all four Gospels is his resurrection. So in the flow of the Gospel here of, uh, of John, this is the fourth miracle that John has recorded. The first one you might remember back is when Jesus created wine there at the wedding at Canaan. The second one was in chapter 4 when he healed the nobleman's son. The third one was in chapter 5 when he healed that man there who was laying by the pool of Bethesda. And that guy who had been there so many years, right, laying there, couldn't get into the pool. And Christ commands him to take up his bed and walk. So this is the fourth miracle. And John's being selective in what he puts forth here. Again, remember John 20 and verse 30 says, Many other signs therefore Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. John 21, 25. There are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books in which were written. So again, John's being selective. This is miracle number four in his record. Now, as I told you previously, when we looked at some of Christ's uh, miraculous dealings, uh, the power of Christ, the miraculous power of Christ was undeniable. And again, nobody in human history had ever stepped into time and done what Christ has done. Nobody had ever come and healed every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people, virtually, as I told you, wiping out all disease in Palestine. And the fact of his miraculous power 
was never called into question. I'll say that again. The fact of his miraculous power was never called into attention, unlike some liberals today who like to call it into attention, but the people of his time never doubted his power because his power was so, and his miraculous works were so numerous, so public that not even his enemies denied his miraculous power, but instead what the Jewish religious leaders did is they blasphemously attributed his power, Christ's power, to Satan. But Jesus' miracles were numerous. And Jesus' miracles were always compassionate. They are always gracious. They are always those events that show the loving heart of God towards those who are in distress. He restored sight to the blind. He gave health to the leper. He gave the ability to walk to the lame. He even raised people from the dead. Again, demonstrating the divine power that he had. And again, all undeniable facts. Now again, sadly, the religious leaders of the day, instead of acknowledging the divine power of the person of Jesus Christ, you know what the religious leaders did and their worldly wisdom, they decided they were going to kill him. Right? They couldn't deny his power, so they decided they were going to kill him rather than to believe upon him. Again, John chapter 11, we haven't got there, obviously, but when he raises Lazarus from the dead, he's been dead four days. Everybody knows it's a miracle in the town. He raises Jesus. Jesus raises him from the dead, and then the, the, the uh, religious leaders want to murder him there, too, and they also want to murder Lazarus. They want to deny the truth, and they want to kill Christ. Right? So hard, so hard is the heart of the unbelieving man. And again, the other miracles that Jesus performed again, uh, of all the other miracles, this is the most massive one inside. Uh, inside. So again, it gives us just a tremendous testimony of the identity of the person of Jesus Christ. Again, he's none other than God come in the flesh. Now, the miracle cannot be logically debated or argued against because you got at least 5,000 witnesses, and again, more than likely 15 to 20, 25,000 witnesses. I won't run the tangent that the rabbit trail that some of the libs like to do today. They say, no, this really isn't a miracle. You know what this is? is? This is an... In- Excuse me, do I have a Kleenex to wipe my tears? This is an inspiration story to tell us how gracious God is because he encouraged the little guy to share his five loaves and everybody else just started sharing their food. Now that's a bunch of trash. Theological word, you can look it up. Scubalon is actually the word, but I won't tell you what that means in English. Okay. Now, this is a miracle of undeniable power and proportion. Christ's creative power is on display. He feeds at least 5,000 and well over. How does he do it? With five barley loaves and two small fishes. And then from that comes 12 baskets of fragments left over. So after everybody had, everybody had eaten enough to their fulfill. So again, the creative power of Christ is on display. He creates food instantaneously. He calls food into existence that doesn't exist. He made loaves of bread from barley that had never grown in the soil and never been harvested and never been baked in an oven. He produced fish that never had swam in the waters. And he did it all instantaneously. Why? Because that's who he is. He's the creator. If you forget, I haven't. Back to John chapter 1, verse 1. Speaking of Jesus, John 1 and 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. That's who Jesus Christ is. He's the one who calls all things into existence by the power of his word, and he does it out of nothing. Therefore, if we are believers in him, listen, we must never despair because nothing is too difficult for him. Amen? We must never despair. Nothing is too difficult for him. And for those of you who are trapped into unbelief, there's no excuse. 
There's no excuse that God in his mercy sets you under the teaching of the word. And God in his mercy keeps revealing to you the truth out of the book of John, saying this is who Jesus Christ is. It's nothing except the hardness of your own heart and your love for your own sin is keeping you away from the salvation that God so richly and freely offers to you through the person of Jesus Christ. Now, John chapter 6 follows the same basic structure as chapter 5. Both record a miracle that it leads to a discussion regarding his identity. And in each chapter, the response by the vast majority of the people is the same. It's outright rejection. Outright rejection, both of his person and his message. And right after his miracle that is again witnessed by tens of thousands of people, Jesus is going to have a discourse on him being the living bread. The living bread that has come down out of heaven to give life to the world. John chapter 6, verse 35, he says, I am, I am the bread of life who comes to me, and he who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So in part, this miracle points to salvation, because that's the next topic. 23 times in all in the book of John, we find ego ami, I am, in the Greek text. And ego ami is, uh, is just what is known as the tetragrammaton. It's the four Hebrew letters that identify the great I am, that identify God himself. Remember, this comes out of the, out of the book of Exodus, that statement, Exodus chapter 3, uh, where Moses asks the name of God, who are going to bring us out of the name, who's going to bring us out of Egypt, who's going to bring me out of Egypt, the children of Israel, what shall I say uh, uh, your name is when they ask me what your name is and when you tell us you're going to take us to the promised land? And remember, his answer was, I am who I am. I am who I am. That's what God said. Right? Because there's no other way that God can define himself in the absolute sense. Because the moment that we try to put it into human words or the human m- mindset, the moment we try to begin to define God, we limit him. So God has to define himself, right? He rejects all of the human standards. He rejects himself. He says, look, I am, a, I am who I am, right? I, I've always been. I, I just, I am. I am the self-existent one. And he goes on to say, well, I am who I am, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? So we can identify him. So when John in his gospel uses those I am terms stated by Christ, he is intentionally trying to take the reader back in our mind, back to the book of Exodus chapter 3, right? He's trying to take us back to the statements of God himself in order for us to understand, again, there's a connection between the God of the Old Testament and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because over and over and over again, the Lord Jesus Christ undeniably declares himself to be God. I am. Right? In several of those I am statements, he joins with tremendous metaphors, which are all expressive uh, um, pictures of God's saving relationship or Christ's saving relationship to the world. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Again, all metaphors to point to the saving relationship that God offers through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that Christ offers himself. But sadly, just as Jesus was rejected in Judea in chapter 5, John's also going to show here in chapter 6 that he's rejected in Galilee. There's a change of scene between uh, Uh, chapter 5 and chapter 6 is a change of location so again this rejection of Christ is part of John's overall teaching as he not only reveals the true identity of the person of Jesus Christ and then at the same time he contrasts the tender love of the Savior as it stands out sharply against against the background of human ingratitude human indifference, human hatred and by the end of the chapter, by the end of chapter 6, we're going to see more clearly the kind of Messiah that the people want. They certainly don't want the one who God sends. 
The kind of people, the, the kind of Messiah that people want is one who would come and provide for them for their physical needs, right? And when these people thought they had found that person, they were willing to take him by force and make him king. But as soon as it became evident by the word of Christ that his concern was not just for their physical needs, but his primary concern was for their spiritual needs, spiritual needs, that he had come to save his people from the guilt and pollution and misery of their sin, they turned their back on him. And they no longer walk with him. So chapter 6, Jesus starts off at the zenith, if you will, the height of his popularity. By the end of the chapter, his popularity has waned. In fact, he'll become the object of scorn. Now, obviously, since Jesus is God come in the flesh, he knew the hearts of the people in front of him. Yet, nevertheless, Jesus was willing to lavish kindness after kindness and grace upon grace upon these people repeatedly, upon these people who he knew ultimately would reject him. Now, let's begin just to look here at the top of the chapter, chapter 6, verse 1. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. Metatatu, right? After these things. Now, that phrase doesn't mean that the events in chapter 6 are following immediately the events of chapter 5. It just means these are the next events. After these things, these are the next events that John is selectively recording. And evidently, there's a big time factor between chapter 5 and chapter 6. According to verse 4, the events of chapter 6 took place shortly before the Passover. If you went back into chapter 5, verse 1, there's an unnamed feast there. If it was the Feast of Tabernacles, it would mean that between chapters 5 and 6, there's about a six-month time uh, lapse between the two chapters. If that unnamed feast back in chapter 5, verse 1, was the Passover, which many of the commentators hold to, then there would be a year gap between chapter 5 and chapter 6. And in that interval, that's when Jesus does his Galilean ministry. So again, there's a time frame, a, a gap between chapter 5 of at least 6 and 6, chapter 5 and chapter 6, at least 6 months and probably 12-month time period. That perhaps, again, with the Galilean ministry, that helps explain why there's an enormous crowd that is starting to gather. And if this is the time of the Passover, that would also contribute to the number of pilgrims here in the area. So after these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, again, the event here in chapter 6, this uh, other than the, I'll back up. Set. This event here, chapter six, and the miracle that he did at Canaan, uh, and the healing of the ruler's son back in chapters two and four. Th- those are the, the healings there. Those are the only events that John records that happen in Galilee. So uh, again, he's very selective in what he puts forward. So again, some time has elapsed. Jesus is no longer in the south, in, in near Jerusalem, but he's gone north. He's in Galilee. All these things, or after these things, also tells us with this time interval that the heat has turned up, right? In this one-year time period, the heat has turned up. The religious leaders of Israel, again, they want to execute him. So in order for Jesus to stay on God's timetable and not to risk an untimely death, death, he is to find isolation north in Galilee. Now, by this time, John the Baptist has been executed by Herod. So again, the heat is on. So he's up there in the north, or in the north, away from the south. He's in this rural area. His headquarters was in Capernaum. And he's going around all these little villages and towns in Galilee doing what he does. For a long period of time, he's healing. He's performing miracles. He's casting out demons, teaching the truth concerning the kingdom of God. And he's beginning to amass a great number of people who are following him as his popularity increases. After these things, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. Now, the Sea of Galilee, as it was known at the time of Jesus, 
at his time of his incarnation is really not a sea. It's just a freshwater lake. Jordan runs into that. Jordan River runs into that. It's about 600 feet below a sea level, and it was often agitated by sudden violent storms. In the Old Testament, this was called uh, Gennesaret, or a Chinneroth. By the time John is writing, he's writing towards the end of the first century, the name has been changed. In the time of the Incarnation, Christ was known as the Sea of Galilee. By the time John writes again at the end of the first century, it's been changed to the Sea of Tiberias. Because there's a major city on that uh, lake called Tiberias, which is named after Emperor Tiberius. So John is just kind of giving you a little bit of historical footnote there. Again, that Sea of Galilee, commonly known in his time as the Sea of Tiberias. That's probably the name that most people would have known uh, at the time, especially Gentile people. So Jesus is here, and he's going to go to the other side. Well, why is that? Well, Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke tell us that he and his disciples, they get into the boat, go to the other side, uh, and the, because the 12 of them had just returned from a, a time of teaching, a time of mission trip, if you will, time of teaching and preaching, as it recorded in Matthew chapter 6. So Jesus wants to pull back, as it were, and regroup. He wants to hear from his men. He wants to, to hear uh, what's going on. Matthew chapter 11 actually tells us, tells us at this time that Jesus is exhausted. He's exhausted in his own ministry. He's exhausted. His disciples are exhausted. So they need some rest. They need some isolation. They need some downtime. They need to pull back a bit from public ministry for a moment. Now, again, John the Baptist in this interim has been executed by the rulers of Israel, uh, by Herod. The rulers of Israel are after them, after Jesus and his disciples. So he's going to go to the east side of the lake. Populations on the west is going to go to the east side of the lake. Again, he's trying to get away from the masses of people. Right? He's trying to find himself and take his disciples in the more rural areas. Luke, in his version of the story, tells us that the miracle which John is going to record here was done in a, a desert place belonging to the city of Bethsaida. At least three of the disciples, of the Lord's disciples, were from that region, Philip, Andrew, and Peter. So Bethsaida is at the head of the lake uh, in Galilee, near the point where the River Jordan enters into the lake. So Christ and his men go over to the other side, trying to get away from the population, go to the other side, try to find some seclusion, but they can't because the crowd follows them. And the crowd is forming, the crowd is gathering in size, verse 2. And a great multitude was following him because they were seeking or seeing the signs which he was performing to those who were sick. Now again, the text tells us specifically that these people were not following Jesus because they recognized him as their only hope. They weren't following him because they recognized him as the Son of God who could save them from their sins, that he was the Messiah, because they were blind to his divine glory. They're following him because they're fascinated with the miracles. Because everybody wants to be healed. Right? Even in our day, false healers, deceivers, the so-called faith healers of our day can draw a crowd because everybody wants to be healed. Everybody wants physical relief. Everybody wants physical relief, sadly, with little concern with what is really important, the condition of your soul, right? The condition of your soul. People are looking for immediate relief, and they're not even considering the reality of their eternal soul. Now, again, this time that's going on here, the incarnation of Christ, I told you before, this is more before modern medicine that we would understand. This is more before pathology has been discovered. So, again, at times where people are helpless. Most people probably had some kind of physical ailment. If they didn't have some kind of physical ailment, most certainly they knew somebody or they had a, a family member that had some kind of physical issue. So in one sense, I guess we can understand, right? People want relief. People want to be healed. So this massive crowd is following uh, Christ. They're flocking to see his work. But ultimately, they were going to refuse his words, right? They're going to refuse his words. They're going to reject him. That's what it says in verse 66. They're willing to accept his benefits, 
They're willing to accept his power as it affects their physical lives. But in reality, most of the crowd is going to refuse to accept him on a spiritual level. <clears throat> they arrive to the northeast shore of the lake, verse 3. Jesus went up on the mountain and there sat with his disciples. Right? The Lord wants some alone time with his disciples. Again, they're tired. He wants some time with the twelve. In fact, the synoptics tell us from this time forward, the Lord really is going to begin to withdraw from this public arena. From the public arena, from this time forward, he's really going to start to devote the majority of his time to the twelve. He's going to teach them. He's going to train them what's going to happen to them and what's going to happen to him. He's going to start to teach them about his coming crucifixion. He's going to start to teach them about the responsibility that they are going to bear as they are the ones, the apostles are the ones who lay the foundation for the church. So many commentators would look at the feeding of the 5,000 as perhaps the pinnacle, if you will, of Christ's public ministry. Because after this, he starts to withdraw. He begins his public uh, pullback. He pulls back from the public eye that has been part of his life. And uh, again, he pulls back, especially as it says in Matthew chapter 11, when he speaks to the cities of Chorazan and Bethsaida, and he rebukes them because of their failure to repent. Right? They'd seen many miracles, and they failed to repent. They failed to turn to him. He warned these two cities that it would be more bearable for them uh, for, for them than the t- wicked cities of Tyre and Sidon and Sodom in the day of judgment than it would be for Chorazan and Bethsaida because they'd witnessed such great power in, in their presence, and they still rejected Christ. Matthew chapter 12, you've got the confrontation with Christ and the Pharisees where he calls or he claimed or they claim that his power is demonic. He calls them a brood of vipers that he says that they are representatives of a wicked and adulterous generation. Matthew chapter 13, when Christ starts to hide the truth as an act of judgment against unbelief and the rejection of truth by teaching in parables. So he's saying, look, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven are going to be kept from those who have hard hearts. At the end of Matthew chapter 13, you've got the second rejection of Christ by his own hometown of Nazareth. So again, as I said previously, by this time John the Baptist is dead. He's been murdered at the hands of Herod. So these are all the events that are going on in the background that are leading up to his public withdrawal. He's gone up here to the mountain. The mountain referred to here probably, and most commentators would suggest, is the region known as the Golan Heights. And if you're as old as I do, you remember that. It was a famous uh, site of a major battle between Israel and the Syrian forces in the uh, Six-Day War of 1967. Verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So again, this is somewhere between six months, perhaps, to a year later after the events of chapter 5. And here's the Passover. So again, in part, you've got enormous crowds headed to Jerusalem for the feast. Pilgrims everywhere. And, And with the Passover, which commemorated the nation's deliverance from Egypt, probably nationalistic feelings are probably reaching a peak. There's excitement over this person, Jesus. He's making quite a stir. People are following him. Maybe Jesus might be the one whom they've been looking for. And again, they weren't looking so much for a spiritual deliverer as they were looking for someone who could deliver them from the hands of the Romans. So they're looking for a a political deliverer. So it's the time of the Passover. Now, what happened at the time of the Passover? Well, stop and think about it. At the time of the Passover was the night when the nation of Israel, the children of Israel, feasted on the Lamb. And ironically, sadly, the Lamb of God is sitting right in their midst and they don't recognize him. And not only don't they recognize him, but they really don't want him. Right? Because the most of that fickle crowd is going to reject him when he makes presses demands upon them on what it really means to be a follower of his. Verse 5 says, Jesus, therefore lifting up his eyes and seeing that a great multitude was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread that these may eat? 
Jesus, lifting up his eyes, seeing a great multitude. Now, we shouldn't conclude from that statement that Jesus was somehow suddenly surprised by the appearance of the great crowd. On the contrary, the Synoptic Gospels again tell us that he is well aware of them because he'd been with them all day long. He'd been performing miracles, healing with healing them all day long. In fact, Matthew 14, 14 says Jesus felt compassion for them and he healed their sick. Mark 6 and 34 says he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he's not caught off guard, right? He sees the great multitude. He feels compassion for this mass of people, even though as God, he knows the vast majority of the people are not going to follow him. He knew that. He knew they didn't believe who he was. Not only did he know they wouldn't, they did not believe who he was, they would not believe. He knew that. They knew that they wouldn't, he knew that they would not believe in who he is. The vast majority of the crowd is going to reject the truth concerning him. They're going to reject Christ. And again, according to verse 26 in that chapter, Christ knew that already. J.C. Ryle, in his uh, commentary on Matthew, makes a statement concerning the compassion of Christ, which is very helpful. Ryle says this, It is a curious and striking fact that of all the feelings experienced by our Lord when he was on earth, there is none so often mentioned as compassion. The Holy Spirit seems to point out to us that this was the distinguishing feature of his character and the predominant feelings of his mind when he was among men. That's a tremendous statement. The compassion of Christ. Again, the vast majority of the world doesn't care, and the vast majority of the world that cares just a little bit doesn't know or doesn't understand who God is because they haven't taken up their Bible and read. Read what it says, the compassion of Christ. That's who God is. He sees the multitude. He considers their needs on a physical level, on a spiritual level. He is moved by their suffering. He is moved by their despair. He is moved by their, by their confusion, by the lostness, again, of the, of the masses spiritually around them. And he has great concern for them, great anguish of soul for them, irrespective of what category they fell into, believer or unbeliever, Jew or Gentile. Didn't matter to him, man, woman, or child. Because the compassion of God, right? The compassion of God is one of, the, one of the great distinguishing marks of the God of the Bible. The compassion of God is one of the great distinguishing marks of the God of the Bible and one of the great distinguishing marks of the person of Jesus Christ himself. Again, most people in their unbelief, most people in their ignorance think that God is some kind of cosmic judge trying to hold them down, suppress their life, make it as miserable as possible for them. And the reality is the truth is completely the opposite. God the Father, out of his tremendous love and compassion, sent his Son as the only substitute, the only sacrifice into this world that the world might be saved. Not that the world would be judged, but that the world would be saved. This is an opportunity for salvation. If God wanted to judge the world because he's a righteous, holy judge, if he wanted to wipe out sin and unrighteousness and iniquity, I guarantee you he didn't have to send somebody. He could do that in an instant. From a distance by a word. But he sent Christ because he's a compassionate God. The, the Bible is open to us. God in his word has opened the Bible to us to understand who he is and our desperate need of him. And this is the only way that you can understand that is by opening the book and understanding who God says he is, who we are, our desperate need, the compassion of God, the mercy of God. It's on display always. The fact that we sit here and take another breath is the compassion of God. The fact that you are listening who are rejecting God and he doesn't wipe you out immediately is the compassion of God. He's compassionate and gracious. In fact, you might remember the story in Exodus chapter 34, right? Moses is having a conversation with God. He wants to see more of his, his, his glory, the God who's 
claim to him that I am that I am who I am? He says, well, you know, I can't show you my glory because if I do, you'll be incinerated. I'm holy and you're not. But he says this, Exodus 34 and 6, the Lord passed in front of him and, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. I mean, again, compassion is one of the great distinguishing marks of the God of the Bible. He desires to forgive sin. He's compassionate. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He abounds in mercy for those who will call upon him. Verse 5, again, Jesus, lifting up his eyes, seeing a great multitude who was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread that these may eat? Now, the text doesn't tell us why he singled out Philip, but he tells us why he asked Philip the question, verse 6. And this was to test him, or he said this to him, to test him, for he, Jesus, knew himself what he was intended to do. Now, again, when Jesus turns to Philip to ask him a question, he's not asking for more information. He's not asking him to help formulate a plan. Jesus already knew what he was going to do <clears throat> with the situation. But he asks Philip the question in order to test him, to prove him, I think it says in the uh, uh, authorized version. He's trying to strengthen Philip's faith. Right? He proposes to Philip a dilemma on how to solve an issue that he can't solve, how to meet the physical needs of so many people. So he asks this question to strengthen Philip's faith and ours as the readers of the text, right? That we would come to an understanding, just like Philip did, of our own inability. It's impossible for Philip and any of the other disciples to provide for the needs of this large crowd, just like they need to come to an understanding, or they needed to come to an understanding of their inability, so we too need to come to an understanding of our inability across the board, Right? Because until we come to a proper understanding of who we really are and our utter inability in ourselves, none of us are going to really, truly appreciate the ability of the person of Christ. Okay, we can't do anything. He does everything. Right? So it's impossible for us to understand and appreciate the Lord Jesus Christ as our only hope and Savior until we come to an understanding that we're sinners in need of a Savior, that we're under the judgment of God. Guilty before him. Condemned, doomed if we're not transformed. If that doesn't take place, if we're not born again, if we're not born from above, then we have no hope. And that's what the person of the Holy Spirit does in our life. That's what the person of the Holy Spirit does in the hearts and the minds of men. He convicts men of sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come. And God in his kindness has to bring us to a position on a spiritual level to sense our own inability so that we will turn to him, so that we will trust him that we'll cling to him and him alone for our salvation. Now, this is in part, I think, what he wants Philip to understand, his inability. Seeing that a great multitude was coming to him, he said to Philip, where are we to buy bread for these that may eat? And this he was saying to test him, for himself knew that he, what he was intending to do. Now, Philip and the rest of the disciples are just like us, or if you want to flip it around, we're just like these guys. We are thick, okay? Thick, we're thick, they're thick. We're all men, we all have frail faith. We all lack faith. Verse 7, Philip answered him and said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. 200 denarii, somewhere around eight months of uh, wages for the average worker. A denarius equal, um, equal to about one day's pay for a common laborer. So when Christ asked Philip the question, the response from Philip is, basically, the situation before me says, we don't have enough money. We don't have enough money to buy bread for all these people. 
Again, the response demonstrates a lack of understanding, a lack of faith. Philip happened to be with the Lord Jesus Christ that day. What was the Lord Jesus Christ doing that day? Performing miracle after miracle on the multitudes, right? Over and over again. Over and over again in the entire time that Philip had been with Jesus in his ministry and over and over again on that very day. And most certainly Philip was familiar with the various Old Testament accounts that making food for God is not too difficult of a thing to do, right? Because God had done that numerous times in the Old Testament. Yet instead of turning to Christ and trusting Christ, again, instead of turning to his miraculous power that he again personally had witnessed over and over again, he starts doing mental math. I'm assuming he didn't have an iPhone, didn't have a calculator. He's doing mental math, trying to figure out what they can do and what they can't do. And he comes to the conclusion that we can't deal with it. The number of people are too great. We can't even get them a little bit of bread for each person. So again, Philip, like us, still doesn't get it. Tied to the earthly realm, he's still thinking on a physical level. And again, they're out in the middle of nowhere. Right? They're in a deserted area. There's no place to buy food. There's no 7-Eleven. There's no like uh, Kroger's down the road or nothing, right? There's no place to buy food, even if they had enough money to buy food. They don't have the resources. They don't have the ability, right? There's not enough to buy bread sufficient for everyone to receive just a bit. Now, according to Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 14, verse 15, it says this. When it was the evening, the disciples came to him saying, the place is desolate. The time has already passed. So send the multitude away that they may go into the villages and buy food from themselves. Right? How do you solve this dilemma? Disciples say, get rid of them. Send the crowd away. Right? That's the, that's the disciples' answer to the problem. Verse 16 of Matthew 14, Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. What? Now you give them something to eat. And they said, again, we only have five loaves and two fish. Again, we don't have the resources. Now, again, it's a pretty sad story. Again, stop and think, what have these men been doing all day long? What had they been witnessing Christ do all day long? What had they been witnessing Christ do not only this day all day long, but all again through his entire ministry, through the entire time that they were with him? They witnessed Christ over and over and over and over again display his compassionate love. They display the love of God for men. Christ meeting men's needs. Christ performing supernatural, displaying supernatural power. Christ healing the sick. Christ casting out demons. Christ raising people from the dead. It would have required about like this much, and it's only because I can't get my fingers together any closer and have a space in there. It would have required about that much faith for the disciples to say, look, we don't have the ability to meet their needs, but you do. We don't have the ability to meet their needs, but you do. You can meet their needs because we know who you are. You can meet their needs by just speaking a word, and everybody's going to be fed, but they didn't do that. They didn't do that. One commentator says this, they are like a person who's standing in front of Niagara Falls asking where he can get a drink of water. Right? When they're face to face with the supreme power of the universe, yet they too are spiritually blind. Send the multitudes away that we may that they may go to the villages and buy food from themselves. Again, just get rid of them. Now here's the question. How many times have we stood in that very same place? How many times have we often how many how often have we stood in that very same place? We say, Well, man, I go to I go to Cornerstone Bible Church, I got good theology. I know Christ. I know who he is. He's the supreme power of the universe. 
He's the one who's loved us in eternity, the one who's loved us in time. He's the one who's laid down his life for us. He's the one who gives us everything that he has to meet our needs. And how many times in our own personal lives have we found ourselves in a crisis situation when we're trying to figure out what to do and we're trying to figure out where our resources might come to meet our needs? And in that struggle, what we do is we turn to earthly, worldly means, to carnal, physical thinking to solve our problems. And we go to the default position that we always often do. We become anxious. When pressure starts to build, we become anxious. We start to fear, start to worry. We have no answer. All we're asking is get rid of them. Get rid of this problem. Send the problem away. That's the only solution that we have to our issue except worrying and fear. When the one who has all of the answers and all of the power and all of the resources in the entire universe stands right in front of us, And we overlook him. Again, these stories just aren't stories. These are stories that tell us historical reality, but they're also stories that point out reality about our own frailty and our own weakness. Our own inability and our own frail faith that needs to be encouraged and strengthened by an understanding of the truth. The disciples say, send the multitudes away that they may go in the villages and buy food for themselves. Get rid of them. Jesus says, look, they don't need to go away. You give them something. And you, actually, in the Greek there, is in the emphatic. You give them. You yourself do this. they got to come to a realization they don't have the resources. They don't have the ability. And again, Christ is trying to teach in the context of the disciples and us to understand the nature of the problem. And to understand the nature of the problem, really, across the board in most of our lives, is just our lack of faith. Our lack of faith, their lack of faith. They didn't turn to Christ. We often don't turn to Christ to meet our needs. So again, Christ is trying to impress upon them and upon us that they can't do anything apart from themselves. And guess what? We can't do anything apart from Christ. Right? In fact, I read that somewhere. John chapter 15, verse 5. John chapter 15, verse 5. If you don't know this verse, you should memorize it. Put it on your forehead so you can look at it in the mirror. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Again, in the Greek, I looked it up. Nothing in the Greek means nothing. You can do no thing, not one thing. Apart from Christ, you and I can do nothing. We need him. Listen, we need him always. Always. Our sufficiency has to be found in Christ. Our sufficiency for all of life has to be found in Christ. Because everything comes from him. Can I get a raise of hands? How many of you in the last few minutes told your heart to beat? How many of you remembered to take a breath? Everything comes from him. Our life, our breath, our heartbeat. All of our daily provisions. All of our food, physically, spiritually. Life, health. Everything is from him and in him. Found in him and and from him. Christ is our sufficiency. And again, when we or people we know have difficulties, issues, needs, a lot of the time you can't just simply get rid of them. Can't just cast them away, send them away. Right? And God's solution is not just to send the issue of the people, the problems away. God's solution is always to meet the needs of mankind. That's why God the Father sent Christ into the world to display again that tremendous compassion that he has to meet men's need at the most basic level. And so how, how foolish it is for us to forget that most fundamental foundational lesson over and over and over and over again. That's why I repeat myself so much up here. Because we, we forget. It's foolishness for us to forget. It's foolishness for us to forget the one who has all authority and all power, the one who has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. 
Please, I beg you, next time you pray, stop and catch yourself and do not pray, Lord, be with us as we fill in the blank. That's not very good theology. He's always with us. God happens to be the one who's everywhere all the time. Omnipresent. The one who has all power. The one who, again, through Christ, has promised to never leave us or forsake us. As it says, no one can do, you can't do anything apart from me, right? I would imagine that it really means uh, he doesn't leave us or forsake us. He's always there. He's the compassion of God. And again, uh, the Psalms say he's mindful of our frame that we're but dust. He knows we're weak. My dear friends, don't think very much of yourself. I don't think much of myself. I think much of Christ, but not very much of myself and my abilities because I don't have any that he's not given to me. Everything we have is a mercy. Everything we have is to point us to our wonderful God and our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to be thankful for him. Verse 8 says, one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon's Peter brother, said to him, verse 9, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Now at this point in Matthew's version, Matthew 14, verse 18, after that revelation, after Christ being told that truth, Christ says, bring them here to me. Bring the food to me. So now Christ has the food. Christ is the source. That's the point. Now barley, if you're concerned about barley, I happen to like full grain stuff, but in the time... Uh, barley was kind of the cheapest grain to be eaten by the poorest of people uh, the bread would have uh, not been loaves like we think but little cakes little crackers right not big loaves no little crackers uh, uh, loaves gives a wrong understanding in the english the fish they would have been pickled something probably along the size of a sardine probably either uh, dried or pickled they were commonly used on these little crackers and Andrew realizes, look, he sees five, five little crackers and two fish. He says, look, it's insufficient, right? What, what will these be for so many people? What do we do? I guess we close the book, we go home, because nobody can solve the problem. So the disciples that are complete standstill, they don't know what to do. They have no ideas. They have no way to deal with the problem. Christ takes charge of the situation. He doesn't reprimand them for their weak faith, but he puts them to work, verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, numbered about 5,000. <clears> Again, Mark 6.40 says that they sat down by ranks, by hundreds and by fifties. So they're sitting in an orderly fashion in order to make the distribution of the food easier. And the fact that the text says there's much grass in the place is just typical of the time in the spring, right? So Passover time, March or April. So again, the number 5,000 is recorded in all four Gospels. The number is the same. <clears throat> again, not counting the women or the children. It would have been reasonable that women, children added all into that group. It could have been somewhere between 15 to 20, 25,000 people, perhaps. And everybody's sitting down. Verse 11. Jesus, therefore, took the loaves, having given thanks. He distributed to those who were seated, likewise also the fish, as much as they wanted. In Matthew's version, Matthew 14, verse 19, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up towards heaven, which is a common attitude of prayer, he blessed the food, he gave thanks, he broke the, broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the multitudes. Verse 20 of that chapter says they all ate and they were satisfied. Uh, the word means they were stuffed, literally. They're completely satisfied. Now, did I go too fast for you? Did you miss the miracle? There's no fanfare, there's no voice from the heavens, there's no thunder and lightning, no drum roll, no trumpets. Jesus took the crackers, 
And having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, and likewise the fish as much as they wanted. Again, the little crackers were made of <clears throat> grain that was never planted in the ground, never harvested, never put in the oven. The little fish never swam in the water, and they had no mommies. Created out of nothing. Instantaneously right in front of everybody. And Jesus is the source. He just continued to multiply food. Not just scant portions, but as much as everybody wanted. Dinner for 15 or 25,000 people, right? Created instantaneously right in front of everybody. Again, it's a miracle of staggering proportions. How did he do it? Well, we don't know because the text doesn't tell us how. All we know is he's the one who did it. He's the one who made it happen. Because Christ is the all-powerful one. Christ is the all-sufficient one. Christ is the source. He created the food. He handed it out to his disciples. The disciples are nothing more than waiters serving tables, right? Serving the guests at Christ's feast. <clears throat> Christ creates more than enough food to satisfy the needs of the multitude and beyond. Look down at verse 12. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves with which were left over by those who had eaten. So Christ not only provides enough food for the day, but he provides enough food for the next day, right? For and maybe the next day after that, meals for his disciples. Because little in the hands of Christ is much. Or in the hands of Christ, very little becomes very much. Little in the hands of Christ is much, or in the hands of Christ, very little became very much. So again, from five small crackers, two pickled fish, in the hands of Christ, he multiplies it so all that crowd, 15, 20,000 people or more, they could eat all they wanted and there were leftovers. Verse 14, when therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this, this is of a truth, the prophet who is to come into the world. It's a reference to the Messianic prophecy given by Moses out of Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 19. <clears throat> Christ has provided this miracle, and the crowd immediately goes back to, to Moses, perhaps thinking about manna that Christ, uh, that God provided in the wilderness, and again the promise of them, a prophet who would come. <clears throat> Verse 15, Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were intended to come to take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So the crowd sees a guy who cannot cannot only heal all the diseases, but a man who's the endless supply of food, right? Let's make him king, right? And again, nothing has changed. Everything's the same. Right? Men always want it easy. There's nothing here in the text that speaks, however, again, of them recognizing the fact that he's the Lamb of God, the Messiah. There's nothing in the text that suggests that they understand their sin and their need from him, that they are separated from God, and that Christ alone has the ability to meet that need. There's nothing in the text. It says anything like that. They're thinking about it at that level whatsoever. All the text tells us is they're looking for someone. The crowd is looking for someone to take care of them. They're looking for someone to meet their physical needs. Someone who could heal them physically. Someone who would be the uh, endless food train that would supply their foods with their, their, their bellies with food. They were looking for and to be a part of the ultimate welfare state. Nothing has changed. Why in the world would I go to work when the government's sending me more money uh, every month than my uh, uh, gift check, my, my virus check? Why would I go to work? Well, because God made you to work. That's why you should go to work. And because God has made you with intent and purpose and, and his likeness and image, and you have value and wor worth in your work, that's why you should go to work. But that's not, that's not my sermon for today. But as I drive by uh, place after place asking people, we need help, we need help, we need help. And people, why, why would I go to work? 
you know? Government's going to provide me everything I need. Why do you stay home? All right. They thought Christ was going to provide them everything they wanted. We'll be a part of your, your kingdom. Again, we're looking for an earthly ruler. We're looking for somebody who can fill our bellies. We're looking for a political leader. Someone who could overthrow the, the party in charge, right? Get rid of, the, get rid of the, the Romans and get rid of their bondage, right? They weren't looking for a savior. They weren't looking for repentance. Again, they're just like people today. So many people just want Jesus on their own terms. They want a Jesus who will make them happy. A Jesus who will make them healthy. A Jesus who will make them wealthy. A Jesus who fixes all their problems and makes them feel good about themselves. A Jesus who they can manipulate to perform whatever their felt need might be at the moment. But they don't want a Jesus that demands repentance and faith. They don't want a Jesus that demands that you would turn away from your sin. But that's the only Jesus there is. The only true Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible. And that's exactly what he demands of people who follow him. Now again, the crowd, the multitude, they appreciate his works... But at the end of the, the chapter, again, they don't appreciate his words. Towards the end of the chapter, right, when he starts making hard demands on his followers, those who want to follow him and those who are truly followers of him, it says in the text that many of the followers, many of the disciples withdrew from him, and they would not walk with him anymore, right? They wouldn't walk with him anymore. In fact, it's interesting, in verse 26 here, John says the very next day after this miracle, the crowd shows up again. Why not, man? We, we need breakfast, right? Verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but you ate of the loaves and were filled. Again, they're not looking to Christ for anything salvific. They're, in, they're there in part for the magic show, the entertainment. They're there to get their personal needs met. They could not see that Jesus was God come in the flesh. Therefore, the vast majority of the people left with their bellies filled, but their lives spiritually empty. But again, the Jesus of the Bible won't allow you to come to him that way. The Jesus, the only true Jesus, will not allow you to come to him on your own terms. Jesus will not allow you to manipulate him for your own selfish benefits. He will not allow you to be, he will not allow himself to be a quick fix to meet your needs. He will not give you everything you want. The only way that you can truly come to him is to come the way he commands. The only way that a person can really come to the Savior of the universe is you've got to come penitent. You've got to come broken. You've got to come acknowledging your sin. You've got to come acknowledging your own insufficiency. You've got to come acknowledging him as the sovereign Lord and God because that's who he is, as the Savior of the world, the only one who can help you in your right relationship before God the Father. And then you have to be obedient to him. You have to live for him. And if he calls you, you have to die for him. You have to serve him. You have to suffer him. You have to be willing to be persecuted for him because that's the message of Christ to his true followers. What does it matter to you? What benefit is it for you if you have your belly full and your soul's headed to hell? You come to Christ on his term, on his terms. And again, he gives that message at the end of chapter 6, and the vast majority of the multitude walk away from him. And eventually they'll hate him because the hard demands of the gospel always sift out the true from the false. The hard demands of the gospel always sift out the wheat from the chaff. It's true then, it's true now. False teachers, false preachers, false faith healers then and now, they can draw, they can draw a crowd. Right? 
because they will present a Jesus that will give them what they want. All you want, if you want God's blessing, you just give me $5,000 and God will promise to bless you with more money, right? You give that guy $5,000 and you'll never see your $5,000 again, nor him. Come get healed. Give me some money. The faith healers, the false faith healers of our day don't heal. They're frauds. They need to be called out as frauds. They're charlatans. Christ is the real deal. There's a lot of false Jesuses out there too. A lot of false Christ out there. This is the only real Christ. The one in the Bible. He come, you come to him based on how he commands you to come to him. And the demands of the gospel are made by the person of Jesus Christ alone. The ones who are superficial, they'll flee when the truth is expounded. The ones who are true followers of Christ that see beyond their physical needs to see to the issue of their soul that Christ alone is the only one who can address their spiritual need, they'll come to him. No demand will be too high to follow the one who gave his life to save their soul. All right, let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for, again, an opportunity to meet. We're thankful to get back here in the book of John. We're thankful for the text that, again, points us not only to our inability, but to the sufficiency of you, our God, and Christ, our Savior. Again, a text that points us to the fact that we need Christ, that we are men and women of weak, frail faith. That we need to acknowledge that, that we need to grow in our understanding and our love for you and our love for the Savior, and then we need to understand again our own inability. You're everything. Your son's everything. We're nothing. But you've loved us. You've shown tremendous compassion upon us. And we thank you for that. Help us to grow in grace. Help us to grow in the knowledge of our Savior. Help us to trust you more and more that you are God and your kindness and your love has sent Christ, the all-sufficient one, into this world, not only to save us, but to walk with us, the one who's promised to never leave us or forsake us in all of the issues and struggles of the day in which we live. We love you. We're so thankful for, again, an opportunity to meet. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.